And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth Destruction Directive. Hello everyone and welcome to Earth Destruction Directive. I am your host as always, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. would like to thank everyone for downloading and listening to the show today. Hope everyone enjoyed our last episode where we took a look at the third of the Godzilla animes, which is Godzilla the Planet Eater. This time out, we are changing gears a little bit. We are taking a look at Ultraman Saga, the third Ultraman Zero film from way back in 2012. But before we get to that, we do have some news, so let's get right into it. Up first, the sequel to Godzilla vs. Kong has wrapped filming in Australia and now has a title, or at least part of a title. Now, what looks like a crew hat has surfaced online and features what looks to be the logo for the film, revealing the title as Godzilla and Kong. Now, given the ending to Godzilla vs. Kong, this title does make sense, as they were, you know, not necessarily allies, but perhaps no longer enemies at the end of the previous film. Now, additionally, a picture of a clapperboard has been floating around, which includes the name Origins. So, uh, that may simply be a code name of the production. There's also speculation going on that the film's full title might be Godzilla and Kong Origins, or something similar to that. Um, obviously, we're expecting lots more information on this one as we move forward. Whatever the film is called, it's expected to be released March 15th, 2024. So, we got uh, a little over a year and a year and a couple of months. Well, almost a year, almost uh, almost 18 months to look forward to uh, Godzilla and Kong. Uh, not surprised by that March release date, as I've said previously. Godzilla vs. Kong did really well in March, coming in the uh, out of the in the pandemic era as it did. So, uh, looking for March going forward. Now, in other film news, a new Japanese Godzilla film was announced during the Godzilla Day event. The as of yet untitled film will be released in Japan on November 3rd, 2023. And all that we know so far is that the film is supposed to take place in post-war Japan from 1945-1947 and is to be directed by Takashi Yamazaki. Now, Yamazaki, veteran special effects artist, he's directed films as varied as several Doraemon movies to the 2014 live-action space battleship Amamoto. Uh, this is another one which I expect to get lots of news on in the coming months, so let's stay tuned. Late breaking news... As I was preparing to record this, Gamera Rebirth, a new project slated for Netflix, was announced. No real details. Uh, it has, I think, been confirmed that it is an anime series, which would make sense. But, uh, again, um, the, the, the announcement was very little information. It said worldwide distribution on Netflix, so that would suggest we'd get it here in the States. So, more up info on that as it comes out. Changing gears a little bit in... High-end toy news. Mattel has revealed the next two installments in their Masters of the Universe Shogun Warriors line, creatively named Shogun Masters, following up from the previous release of Skeletor. The new releases are He-Man, no big shock there, and in something of a surprise, Faker, the evil blue-skinned robotic version of He-Man. These two stand around two feet tall, 
have launching fists and wheels in their feet, similar to the vintage Jumbo Machinda-style Shogun Warriors. And you can pre-order these on creation.mattel.com. They cost $300 each, have a release date of April 2023. I am super tempted by the He-Man. I don't have the Skeletor. I really do like that He-Man. However, I do not have $300 lying around that I can spend on toys right now. So it looks like I will simply have to admire the uh, Shogun Masters from afar. Uh, finally, in sad news, Godzilla series director Kazuki Amori has passed away. Amori notably directed several of the Heisei-era Godzilla films, including Godzilla vs. Biolanti, Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah, Godzilla vs. Mothra, and Godzilla vs. Destoroya. Amori worked as a director and screenwriter starting in 1975 all the way through 2017. Amori passed away due to complications from leukemia on November 12th. He was 70 years old. All right, folks, that's all I've got. If you've got any news that you think uh, would be of interest on the show, please go ahead and send it in, earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com, and I'll give you a shout-out here on the show. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, it's time to get into Ultraman Saga right here on Earth Destruction Directive. Once upon a time, five friends who met on the Bot Talk Transformers forum set out to develop a podcast dedicated to their various interests. Transformers, science fiction, fantasy, and comic books. Part fanboys and part assholes, they came to be known as the Fanholes. Their unbridled enthusiasm for podcasting did not end there, and soon enough, their proper podcast spun off into the Fanholes network of podcasts. Besides our podcast proper, the Fanholes soon had a continuum of genre-specific, focused shows such as Mobile Suit Mondays, Transformers Tuesdays, Toku Thursdays, and Sentai Saturdays. New weekly content can be found on Podbean, iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and fanholespodcast.blogspot.com. Fanholes Podcast, the pop culture podcast, made for the fans, by the fans. All right, we are back on Earth Destruction Directive. Ultraman Saga was released in Japanese theaters on March 24th, 2012, and topped out at 4th at the Japanese box office. In addition, it was the first Ultraman film to be screened in 3D. Ultraman Saga never got a theatrical release here in the West, but did get a home media release, which we will talk about a bit later. Our writer is Keiichi Hasegawa. Hasegawa has numerous tokusatsu credits, specifically as a writer for every Ultraman series from Tiga all the way through Ginga, including being credited as the, quote, main writer on Ultraman Dyna. Additionally, he also wrote for Kamen Rider Double, for Kamen Rider Forza, Kamen Rider Drive, as well as anime like The Big O, SSS.Gridman, and its sequel slash follow-up, SSS. S.DynaZenon. Uh, our director is Hideki Oka. Uh, Oka's had various titles in a tokusatsu field, mainly as an assistant director, though, on many of the same Ultra series which Hasegawa wrote for. In addition to Saga, he also directed the side story uh, Ultraman Zero vs. Darklops Zero, which takes place before this, and Ultraman Zero Fight. Uh, our synopsis is uh, quite liberally adapted from ultra.fandom.com and goes a little something like this. Our story opens in a seemingly abandoned city where a group of Earth Defense Force troops, dubbed Team U, make a supply run to a grocery store. The trip is cut short when the monster Arstron appears, chasing the Team U members off. 
The chief, Anna, arrives in a U-loader mecha and lures the monster to a specific grid in the city, where Team U has deployed an improvised landmine. The explosives slow Arstron, but are unable to stop it completely. Things look grim until the timely arrival of Ultraman Dinah, who defeats the monster and departs, much to the bewilderment of Anna and the rest of Team U. Meanwhile, in deep space, Ultraman Zero is cleaning up remnants of Legionoids from the last film when an unknown being reaches out to him telepathically. Zero says he is busy, but the voice asks for his help, as there is an Earth which is in grave danger. Zero relents and traverses to another dimension to save this Earth. At the Land of Light, Ultra 7 becomes aware of Zero traveling through space-time, and he, along with Ultraman, Ultraman Leo, Ultraman Ace, and Ultraman Jack, speculate that the new crisis may be related to a mysterious flying saucer which has been sighted, and the missing monsters from the monster graveyard. In yet another universe, it is the 15th anniversary of the sacrifice of Asuka, Ultraman Dinah, which saved that universe from destruction. We then meet Nozumu Taiga, a hotshot rookie in Super Guts, who is not impressed with the honor bestowed on Ultraman. The celebration is cut short when a sphere arrives at the TPC base, replicates, and attacks. Taiga, piloting the Guts Eagle Alpha, uses his aerial combat skills to blast the spheres when he is trapped by the flying saucer, which disappears without a trace. Back in the abandoned city, Zero arrives from his dimension and wonders where all the humans have gone. Before he can find any answers, the saucer appears and releases waves of fighters. Zero engages the fighters while Taiga, still in the Alpha Eagle, regains consciousness and launches. He observes Zero battling the fighters, but when one damaged fighter is about to crash into a young boy, Taiga rams it with the Alpha Eagle, sacrificing himself to save the boy. Zero then saves Taiga's life by merging with him leaving Taiga confused both on how he survived and why he now has the Ultra Zero bracelet on his wrist. Zero communicates telepathically with Taiga, but Taiga wants nothing to do with him, saying he did not agree to be merged with an Ultraman and demanding Zero leave immediately. Their argument is interrupted by the arrival of the monster Gubila. Zero says they must transform, but Taiga refuses, grabbing the boy and running instead. The timely arrival of Ultraman Cosmos saves them both, as he is able to calm Gubila down and defuse the situation. Cosmos changes back to his human form, Musashi Haruno, and introduces himself. Zero recognizes Cosmos as his reputation precedes him as the, quote, merciful warrior. The introductions are interrupted by the arrival of Team U and their mecha, as they were looking for the young boy, Takeru. Team U returns Taiga and Musashi to their base, where they explain to the newcomers that the alien Bat has used his saucer to abduct the vast majority of people on the planet. When the people were taken, a group of orphaned children came to the EDF base for help, and Team U took them in. Team U then explains that Bat is using the abducted humans to power his creation, Zetun, which is growing inside of its egg. Bat chooses that exact moment to make himself known, appearing to taunt the survivors and unleashing the monsters Gubila and Gomez to attack the base. Musashi changes to Cosmos, but when he is outmatched, Taiga realizes that he must transform to save the base and its inhabitants. However, Taiga's unwillingness to work with Zero results in her combination only being about 10 feet tall and not nearly powerful enough to battle the monsters. Zero scolds Taiga for not doing his best, while the children laugh at the comically small Ultraman. Cosmos calms both monsters down, but Bat is not willing to accept this, killing both monsters with his saucer instead. That night at dinner, Musashi asks about a statement made by Bat, 
about the so-called new Ultra Heroes, and if there was an Ultraman on this world before. Team U and the children talk about their friend Asuka, who helped them years earlier, revealing it to be Ultraman Dinah. Later, Zero asks Taiga why he refuses to work with an Ultraman. Taiga reveals that as a child, his parents were killed in a monster attack, and though Dinah did stop the monster, he was left all alone in the rubble of the city. That day, he decided he would never count on Ultraman, or any hero, to ever save him. Meanwhile, Musashi tells the children of his homeworld, where humans and monsters live peacefully together. The next day, Bat assaults the Team U base again, this time having Zetun launch fireballs from Teg. Rescuing the kids, Taiga flashes back to his own childhood ordeal and freezes. Afterwards, Zero questions him again. Aren't you ashamed of your behavior? Taiga rages, saying that this is who he is. But he soon discovers that Team U are not really the Earth Defense Force. They are simply what was left, a ragtag bunch of reservists, mechanics, and a nurse who chose to put themselves in harm's way to protect the orphaned children. Team U sees themselves as fakes, but Taiga realizes that they are the ones doing the right thing. Taiga and Musashi plan to battle Zetun. Anna asks them to avenge Asuka, who died trying to stop Bat from creating Zetun's egg. As Zero and Cosmos head off to battle, Anna learns from Takeru that Asuka's life flasher device ended up buried near the Zetan egg, and all the times he had broken out was to try to locate it. Zetan emerges from his egg, a towering insectoid monster many times larger than the Ultra Heroes. At the base of the egg stands the petrified form of Ultraman Dinah, where he had uh, tried to stop Zetan's creation. Anna's sister, Risa, takes Takeru to find the life flasher, despite the danger of the nearby battle. Takeru, tears streaming down his face, finally locates the device. Anna, not wanting to fail Asuka again, flies towards Dinah's form and tosses the life flasher at it, reviving Ultraman Dinah to fight once again. Together, the three heroes have the power to destroy Zetan. Bat has other ideas, however, and merges his saucer with the body of Zetan to form Hyper Zetan. Hyper Zetan's incredible speed makes him impossible to hit, and he can manipulate energy to send the hero's beams right back at them. As the battle rages, Team U retrieves Anna from the wrecked U-loader, and she dies from her injuries. The three heroes are forced to power down, but are able to push past their limits and transform into a new merged form, Ultraman Saga. Saga is just as fast as Hyper Zetan and brings the battle back on even terms. The incredible burst of energy released from the transformation revives Anna, and she and Team U join the fight to save the planet. Saga then pulls Hyper Zetan into orbit, where one final strike not only destroys the monster, but also kills the alien bat as well, ending the threat. The release of energy from the destruction of Zetan's body also releases all of the abducted humans. Back on Earth, all of the orphan kids, including Takeru, are reunited with their parents. Team U and the heroes commend each other on defending the children and saving the day. In a post credit scene, Asuka appears to Super Guts' team and tells him that Taiga will not be returning, as he has found a new path to walk. Asuka's Guts' team may tell him that they will eventually catch up to him, and he assures them that he will always be waiting for them. Well, there certainly was a lot of action and drama in this film, a lot of references to past events, so let's get right into the notes. As the third film to Star Ultraman Zero, Saga continues Subaraya's, you know, restart, reboot, revamp, re-whatever you want to call it, of their Ultraman series here. Now, I remember back about eight or so years ago buying Malaysian DVDs for the first two films, which were 
uh, Mega Monster Battle Ultra Galaxy Legends, which you can hear me and Derek Crab talk about in episode 34, and The Revenge of Belial, which you can hear Derek and I talk about in episode 71. And I really enjoying both of those films. Now, between those two movies, Zero goes from the brash screw-up with a heart of gold to the big damn hero who not only saves the entire multiverse, but recruits his own dude squad with which to do it. But that is a prologue. Saga has a lot to live up to, and unfortunately, it is just not as ambitious a film as the two before it. It's fine as an Ultraman movie, but after the widescreen, universal scope of the last two films, this one seems mm, scaled back, more akin to a two-part TV episode than a theatrical feature. You know, that may not be fair to criticize the film by comparing it to the other films, but when you're in a series, that's what one tends to do. But, you know, in the interest of fairness, I still think Saga is a good film and has some intriguing aspects, but I, for one, could not help but feel a little let down by it. Now, one aspect which is similar to the previous film is Zero getting another temporary human partner. Taiga makes for a good foil to Zero here, being stubborn and obstinate, much in the same sort of way that Zero himself was when he was younger. I did like that, through Taiga's origins, the film pushes a talking point, which I do see leveled at Daikaiju in a modern critical context. What happens to all those people when the city gets destroyed? Now, we as Daikaiju fans, we accept city smashing as a trope of the genre. But when taking a critical eye at the real-world ramifications of such an event, and I'm hesitant to say this, but it's true, especially in a post-9-11 world for us Westerners, it's a legitimate question to ask, and I applaud Saga for not only not backing away from it, but putting it front and center. Of course, there are no answers provided. Uh, bad things happen to good people, and bad things happen to kids too. In the end, everything is a happy ending because it's an Ultraman movie, and the Ultra heroes always save the day. But even tackling this topic at all seemed noteworthy. This brings me to another theme in the film, the suffering of children caught in the crossfire of war. In this case, the war is of the science-fictional variety, but the visual vocabulary of the children's haunted eyes while standing in the rain when they go to the EDF HQ is plain. Children and other vulnerable peoples often become the so-called human wreckage of war, and again, to plainly portray a group of children as orphaned refugees here was a bold step. These are heady themes for a franchise about, frankly, giant heroes battling monsters, and while from an action point of view I can call Saga a letdown, from a social awareness standpoint, it clearly has more to say than its predecessors, while still, admittedly, ultimately being about heroes fighting monsters. Now, whether you want to see that or not in your Ultraman is your call. Honestly, you can watch this film and not worry of any of this stuff. But I have to presume that Hasegawa was thinking along these lines by using these elements in the film. Now, all of that said, I don't want this to sound like this is a social awareness or a political film. Far from it. Saga very much plays on the ultra-hero adventure story level and can easily be enjoyed on that level. In fact, the tagline for the movie is Never Give Up, and it's certainly a positive, kid-friendly way to spin these scenes for the younger viewers. Now, my kids who have watched Ultraman Zet, Trigger, Decker, and Ultra Galaxy fight with me would thoroughly enjoy this movie and probably not think anything about the potentially deeper issues. In that sense, Saga works on both levels, so you're free to enjoy it however you'd like. Now, being made and set 15 years after the end of Ultraman Dyna, this film does function as both the next installment of Ultraman Zero's story, as well as a sort of tribute to Dyna. Now, regrettably, while I own the series, I have not watched Ultraman Dyna, so many of these references went right over my head. 
This includes most of the Superguts characters. They are evidently returning characters from the series who have grown up and gotten promoted to more senior positions in the interim. Now, I do have to say that my not knowing who these specific Dinah characters were did not negatively impact my enjoyment of the, of the film. The context clues we are provided is more than enough to paste over any gaps that the viewer may have. Now, amusingly enough, I was able to understand some of the Dinah material thanks to Ultraman Dekker. Specifically, I recognized the spheres immediately from the role they played in the first episode of Decker. So it's, you know, having a show that's an homage to another show, at least you get some of that, right? The presence of Ultraman Cosmo struck me as an unusual choice initially, until I realized that not only was it the 10th anniversary of that series, but also that Hasegawa was one of the series' writers. The Merciful Warrior makes for a good pairing with the more hot-tempered Zero, though admittedly Zero is pretty even-keeled here compared to his earlier films. I think the presence of Cosmos and Musashi here allows more character growth for Taiga, as Taiga can see that there is not only one way to be a hero. The Ultra series has never shied away from the idea that, yes, monsters need to be stopped if they threaten mankind, but that does not always mean that the monster must be killed. We actually saw this a couple episodes back here on this show, in uh, the episode with Wu, where the snow girl accuses the science patrol of killing whatever they don't understand, and Ide rebuts her. Musashi's dedication to mercy at one point, when he's asked what he will do if Kubila returns, he simply responds, I'll calm him down again. That dedication makes him distinctly different from his two fellow Ultra Heroes here, and really does give him a nice spotlight. Now, amusingly, as I am recording this, I just received my Ultraman Cosmos set from Mill Creek, so I definitely need to check out at least the movies from that set now. Now, all of Team U is played by members of the Idol Supergroup AKB48, which is a very large idol group some might say idol faction, based out of the Akihabara district of Tokyo. Now, this was part of a larger collaborative effort between the group and Subaraya. I personally have to think that this move has a lot to do with demographics. Namely, adding a half dozen very attractive young ladies, and putting each one in a different sort of gravure idol variant on a standard sci-fi duty uniform, is a targeted method to reach teenage males. I mean, one SDF member has bare shoulders, one wears a short-flowing skirt, one has absolute territory boots, one has a jaunty hat, and so forth. I think having a team of young women does change up the dynamic a bit, uh, also plays into the compassionate theme that Team U presents in the film, but you'll have to excuse me for just a little cynicism on this point, especially considering that during my research I found that AKB48 was apparently tied to a trend of young men becoming passive when it comes to romance because they are focusing so much attention on their idols, so clearly there was some interest from the male potential audience. The special effects in Ultraman Saga are mostly what you'd expect from the Subaraya team at this point. All the heroes and monsters look and move great. The new design for Saga is very sharp, a def definite ultimate sort of form. Personally, I really like the fancy crests on his head, giving Saga a regal look like a crown. The setting of the movie does allow for some more traditional battling-in-a-city type of effects than we had in the last two films, which featured outer space battles for the most part. The city models look good, and like I said, it's a treat to have them back. And now, in addition to the suitmation, of which there is plenty, please don't mistake me, we also get a fair bit of CGI, chiefly for the U-Loader mechs and then Zetton. While the suitmation certainly reflects Ultraman's TV origins, the CGI is even more so in that direction. It's not bad CGI. It's just about what you'd expect from a Japanese TV show in 2012. 
So it's a little, a little cartoony, a little light, you know, but it looks, it looks good. The designs of both the U-loaders and Zetton are quite nice, which helps quite a lot. We've talked about this before, the idea that in a Eastern uh, sort of fantasy or science fiction film, sometimes it's not necessarily going for realism as it is an intriguing or eye-catching design. And I, I do like what they did with the CG as far as the designs. The U-loaders specifically strongly remind me of Guts Hawk and Guts Falcon with their sort of simplistic transformation, does make me wonder if they were part of the inspiration for those later mecha, in addition to, obviously, the ones from, from Dinah and, and uh, Tiga. Uh, the effects certainly are good enough for what they need to be, even if they will not be mistaken for an A-list Hollywood production. I don't think we go into an Ultraman film expecting Hollywood-style effects. We go in expecting tokusatsu effects, and these definitely hit that uh, mark, no questions asked. In closing... I think it is fair to say that Ultraman Saga is not as good as the previous two movies, and so suffers by comparison. It's not a bad film on its own, but it is not overly ambitious, and does seem sort of low-rent. Taken on its own merits, though, it's a fun, entertaining movie filmed with action and melodrama. We get an intriguing new hero in Taiga, a very engaging support squad in Team U, a new villain, some returning favorite heroes, and a new form for those heroes in the last reel. I suspect that this will hit a bit harder if you've seen Ultraman Dinah, but even given that, the presence of the older heroes is definitely appreciated. I think that kids and younger viewers will dig this one as well. So if you've been following the adventures of Ultraman Zero, or maybe you've gotten into Ultra via Zet or the other newer series, give Saga a viewing. It should hit that sweet spot for you. If you would like to own Ultraman Saga, it is available from Mill Creek on their Ultraman Zero Blu-ray set, which also includes the film Revenge of Belial and the two side stories, Ultraman Zero vs. Darklop Zero and Killer the Beat Star. Right now the set is about $17 for the two movies and the two guidance on Amazon, so pretty good. The film is also available to stream on Amazon Prime Video via Shout Factory, so it is out there. I will say this, the one that is included on the Blu-ray, and I guess the streaming also, is the theatrical cut of the film. There is a director's cut of this film, which, as near as I can tell, has not been released in the West at all. The It has an extra scene during the last fight where the spirits of the ultra heroes that are on the Land of the Light manifest themselves when um, Alien Bat brings out the spirits of some monsters that he stole from the graveyard. So it's just an additional effect scene. We do get to see the the, the Ultra Brothers in action. I, I do not think that is anywhere in the West that's been released. The Mill Creek one does not include it. So I think you can, I don't know if you can find it online. Honestly, I, I wasn't able to find it, but I didn't look all that hard. But if you do watch it on either that Blu-ray set or on streaming, you're going to see the one we talked about here in the episode. All right, so now I throw it to you, the listener. What do you think? Have you seen Ultraman Saga? Do you like this one more or less or about the same as the last two Zero movies? Do you, uh, do you think that setting it on an Earth-like setting instead of space is a nice, uh, nice, nice return to Origins? Or did you prefer the other ones? I would love to talk about it here in the show. Write me, EarthDestructionDirective at Yahoo.com. We can talk about it. All right, I'm going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with listener feedback and to close out the show right here on Earth Destruction Directive. My name is Grundy, born on a Monday. The following recording was taken from an NSA wiretap of a Back to the Men's taping. No names have been changed. Everyone is guilty. Do I need to mine, or am I good where I'm at? Well, now you do. <laughs> if I have to mine, you have to yours. You might want to 
listeners, only if you do have it set to automatically because you don't want it to automatically because the thing never works right. Because what will happen is it'll be used to you at a particular time. And then if you go out of that, it scrambles to uh, a and it doesn't fast enough. So it's better to just set it up. Oh, okay. It, it really doesn't work well. So I checked right. uh, I checked my... Uh, mm-hmm. my pr- it definitely built me for the hotel for all three of us. Join Back to the Bins every week for... Goodness. Solomon Grundy hate voiceovers! All right, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. And I hold in my hands a little bit of... Listener feedback, if you would like to get in touch with Earth Destruction Directive, you can write me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. You can also reach me on Facebook and Twitter and YouTube, listen to the outro to the show, and we'll get all that information. So our email this time comes from my brother, Jason Giaconetti. It is entitled, Who Goes There? And Jason writes, Hey Luke, just finished up your latest episode on the two episodes of Ultraman. Honestly, I have never watched Ultraman and certainly never heard of either of these episodes. And while the one about the girl and her yeti sounds different, something about Who Goes There sounded familiar. The novella Who Goes There by John W. Campbell was published in Astounding Science Fiction in 1938. It is a story that would later become The Thing from Another World. The Thing from Another World would be published in an extended novel version after the 1951 movie. Recently, an early manuscript entitled Frozen Hell was discovered and published in 2019. Anyway, getting to the point. Point? I don't need a point. It's a podcast, man. (laughs) Who Goes There was very popular upon release, and the film was a hit as well, debuting in Japan on May 15, 1952. There's clearly some overlap between the novella, the movie, and this episode. But there is also some Day of the Triffids, April 1963 in the UK and the US, September 1963 in Japan, and there as well. And while vampire plants are not a new concept, I immediately thought of these two examples when you were talking about the episode. Clearly the episode is more like John Carpenter's The Thing from 1982, but the novella has a lot of it in there. Has a lot of it in there. The hiding in human form is also not new, but again, part of the novella. Just wanted to throw this out there. Keep up the great work and keep them stomping. Jay. P.S. Way back in 2010, before I was even considered for membership, you guys covered both the things on the vault of starting Monster Horror Tales of Terror. That is true. I think that was our second episode. Uh, but yes, Jay, you're absolutely right. I can't believe that. And I know you're such a big fan of who goes there and both versions of the thing. I can't believe I never made that connection. But yes, this definitely does seem like a riff on the classic novella Who Goes There, doesn't it? With the um, you know, the, the plant-like monster and hiding in sight and all that. So I, I did... That's a really great point, and I was glad that you, you shared this. You know, a few episodes of Ultraman back, we talked about Goldon and the references to Pellucidar and how it was sort of a throwback to classic science fiction. So it would, seems to me that this one was a bit more inspired by classic, you know, horror and science fiction again, right? So the connection's there. So very good point. I never thought of that. And, you know, that's, that's interesting. Recontextualizing that episode, thinking of, you know, who goes there? It makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? It, it, some of the story beats and stuff definitely fit it, especially the idea of a, uh, a killer plant and the guy, you know. So I, I was glad that you wrote this in, Jay. Thank you very much. This is an excellent piece and definitely, uh, not, now I want to watch the thing from another world. I haven't seen that in a long time. It's a, it's a classic. And yeah, vampire plants and Day of the Triffids and then with, with, uh, alien plants coming, uh, you know, and, and terrorizing the earth. Day of the Triffids is, is, every time I think British science fiction, 
I know I'm supposed to think Doctor Who. I really usually think Day of the Triffids. That's the one that kind of jumps to my head. Day of the Triffids and then maybe Gorgo, but Day of the Triffids is one. Maybe maybe we'll have to cover Day of the Triffids either on my show or your show at that at some point. There's a lot of Triffids material out there. I have to keep that in mind. Uh, so thank you very much, Jay, for writing in. Really appreciate it. I do have another email in the email sack from uh, from Billy D. I'm going to save that one for next time. Folks, the email sack is getting awfully light. So uh, if you want to write in, this is your chance to get your name heard on a podcast. <laughs> your thoughts heard. So definitely uh, reach out. Social media likes, shares, retweets, other love for the last couple episodes came from Camo Bat Dad, Wacky Bronze and Silver Age Comics on Twitter, the Two True Freaks Podcast Network, Furbus G, Crystal Lady Jessica, Nathan Marchand and Jimmy from NASA. Together they are the Monster Island Film Vault. The Henshin Men Podcast, Mike at Send Aliens to Me, Professor Allen and the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, Mr. Lomax, the aforementioned Doc Strange, a.k.a. Billy D, Into the Weird, the aforementioned Jason Giaconetti, my brother, the Godzilla Novelization Project, Derek, Derek WC, Derek William Crabb from the Fan Holes Podcast, John K. Mulder, Chuck Rodriguez, Darren Sutherland, Gene Gene the Podcasting Machine Hendrix, Robert Ludwig, the most sane man among us, Tim Elliott, and Brian Severe. Thank you so much, everyone, for your love and feedback on social media. Helps get word out for the show. Uh, I say it every time. Podcasting is a labor of love, and any of that feedback is greatly appreciated. I would also like to take this time, of course, to say that Earth Destruction Directive is for everyone. If you are interested in Japanese giant monsters, you are welcome to interact with this show in every way you feel comfortable. We're not an elitist show. We're not a gatekeeping show. We are here to celebrate Japanese giant monsters, and that is something that everyone can be interested in. All are welcome. So, as we are moving into the last month of the year, we're gonna, you know, we gotta always be looking forward, right? We can't can't be looking backwards. And so what is coming next is always a question that everyone wants to know. So we're gonna shift gears once again. We're gonna jump from the modern era back to the Showa period. We're gonna stay live action, we're gonna stay in the film, but I think we're gonna go in a really different direction. We're gonna be taking a look at one of Toho's more obscure tokusatsu films. We're taking a look at 1962's Gorath. Now, it's going to be very interesting because Gorath is not commercially available, but we'll talk about that on the episode. So I hope everyone will come back and, and check that out. I hope everyone enjoyed this episode of Earth Destruction Directive. As I'm recording it, we are in the run-up to Thanksgiving, one of my personal favorite holidays. So uh, be sure to, uh, you know... Uh, Cook like Godzilla from Godzilla vs. Sea Monster. Roast bird at, you know, 9,000 degrees for 10 seconds and then serve. That's the way to do it. So, uh, uh hope everybody has a, a good Thanksgiving. If you're Canadian, hope you had a good Thanksgiving. Let's put it that way. Uh, so, uh, and if you don't get to eat turkey on, on Thursday, eh, you'll be okay. Anyway, so hope everybody enjoyed this episode talking about Ultraman Saga. Please remember you can check me out on Facebook, you can check me out on Twitter, you can check me out on YouTube, just search for Earth Destruction Directive. Uh, please come on back next time, we're going to talk about Gorath, and until then, keep them stomping. This has been Earth Destruction Directive, a Daikaiju podcast, produced and created by me, Luke Giaconetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Available at 2TrueFreaks.com. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property is copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. 
If you would like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I try to respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, I will read them on the show. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at 2TrueFreaks.com. You can also find the show on your favorite podcatcher. Just search for Earth Destruction Directive. You can even leave a review on your podcatcher of choice if you'd like. You can find me on Facebook. Just search for first name Luke, last name EDD. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter. Just search for the handle at LJacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. The theme song for this podcast is Future Gladiator by Kevin McLeod, downloaded from Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 license. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun here on Earth Destruction Directive. Tune in next time to hear the crusty old podcaster from Oklahoma say, There's a WTF (laughs) moment if I ever saw one.